Here it is. From deep inside your radio. What is this, Throwback Sunday? Huh. Old school, baby. Old school. Ladies and gentlemen, uh, this, this you can take to the bank, even if it's Citibank. Uh, this is the only even roughly satirical broadcast on radio or television in the United States that makes this promise. Donald Trump will never be a guest or guest host on this program. Send right now. Take it to the bank. Get a, get a bond. Bonded out. Um, but this was a week, it, it seems to me, you know, people are reacting with, I think, the appropriate level of disbelief as uh, modern American life plays out before our very eyes and ears. Although not that many people have uh, looked askance at the fact that Bob Dylan is doing an IBM commercial. Have you seen that? He's talking to a computer, okay, and not cursing it. That's the that's the part that's hard to believe. He's talking to a Watson, or the Watson, or Watson. Yeah, that Bob Dylan. Actually, not that Bob Dylan. This Bob Dylan. Anyway, the week pockmarked with reporting by various news by the you know the left wing media like the Wall Street Journal owned by Rupert Murdoch about claims made in Dr. Ben Carson's many, several autobiographies. Um, and the, the most media attention has, of course, gone to the most trivial uh, point at issue, which is uh, whether he was offered a full scholarship to go to West Point. But um, more interestingly are the uh, assertions he makes about his early life and what a what a... Um, a troublesome kid, a troubled kid, he was. You know that I think the stories by now about him uh, pulling, thinking about hitting his mom with a hammer. Well, you know, if you have a hammer, even your mom looks like a nail. Um, and uh, other other violence that he either uh, perpetrated or was uh, sorely tempted to perpetrate. And. Uh, CNN, I think, came up empty in trying to find anybody who had uh, witnessed any of these events. His mom has Alzheimer's, so she's not going to be talking. But, uh, one of the, and I don't think it was CNN, but one of the news agencies that uh, tried to check up on this stuff did find a classmate of, of Dr. Ben Carson's who said, I don't remember any of that stuff, but I do remember he wore a pocket protector. Which to me is the is the key insight in this whole affair, this whole nutty affair. Because the, the the point of his autobiographies, the point of his life story is the amazing turnaround, the conversion story. It's just, it's not quite that amazing. If uh, you know, the conversion, the other side of the, the the bad side of the conversion was a kid walking around with a pocket protector. So it may be that the, 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 the suggestions of pathology were, were in those books just to juice up the, uh, 
the sexiness of the conversion or the lack of sexiness of the but you, the the potency, the awesomeness of the conversion, because I guess what Ben Carson was trying to say is, I was not Urkel. Hello, welcome to the show. Ding, 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 ding. Amar a tolice é bobagem e ilusão Eu prefiro viver tão sozinho Ao som do lamento do meu violão Doralice, eu bem que lhe disse Olha essa embrulhada em que vou me meter Agora, amor, Doralice, meu bem Como é que nós vamos fazer? Doralice, eu bem que lhe disse Amar a tolice é bobagem e ilusão Viver tão sozinho ao som do lamento do meu violão Doralice, eu bem que lhe disse Olha essa embrulhada em que vou me meter Agora, amor, Doralice, meu bem Como é que nós vamos fazer? Um belo dia você me surgiu Eu quis fugir, mas você insistiu Alguma coisa bem que andava me avisando Até parece que eu estava adivinhando Eu bem que não queria me casar contigo Bem que não queria enfrentar este perigo Doralice, agora você tem que me dizer Como é que nós vamos fazer? Louisiana, where the streets are paved with holes. I'm Harry Shearer, welcoming you to this edition of Le Show. And now... News of the Godly. Deadline Vatican City. Vatican financial investigators suspect a department of the Holy See... Holy See, Holy Do, which oversees real estate and investments. That department was used in the past for possible money laundering, insider trading, and market manipulation, according to a report seen by Reuters. Wholly seen by Reuters. The information in the confidential document, which covers the period from 2000 to 2011, has been passed on to Italian and Swiss investigators. Oh, that'll do it. That'll do it right there. For their checks, because some activity tied to the accounts allegedly took place in those countries, according to a senior Vatican source. Well, 
Vatican is so small, not all the trading can occur there. While most of the media focus of the Vatican's murky finances has for decades centered on its official bank, yes, a department called the Administration of the Patrimony of the Holy See, or APSA, acted as its own financial powerhouse inside the Vatican. APSA is a sort of general accounting office that manages the Vatican's real estate holdings in Rome and elsewhere in Italy, pays salaries of Vatican employees, and acts as a purchasing office and human resources department. Oh, man, you want to get called into HR at the Vatican? Wow. One of its two divisions also manages the Vatican's financial and stock portfolio. The 33-page report suspects this division was used by an outsider for non-Vatican business with possible complicity of staff in violation of regulations. How could that happen? The internal investigation is part of a drive by the Pope to give Vatican financial authorities free reign to dig deep, overruling some cardinals who would prefer to forget the past. Well, that sounds just like everybody else running things. You know, let's look forward. Don't look backward. What, what can you see looking backward? Just bad stuff. The Vatican has over, uh, overhauled its scandal-plagued bank. Scandal-plagued bank at the Vatican, ladies and gentlemen. Given more power to its financial intelligence authority. <laughs> they have one of those. Appointed its first auditor general and set up a new ministry to oversee economic activities of all departments of the Vatican, which previously ran their budgets with little or no control. It's not clear, says Reuters, whether this will be enough to bring full financial transparency to these traditionally secretive Vatican. Did you want your church to keep its financial secret? The report by Vatican financial investigators zeroes in on the activity of Giampietro Natino, chairman of Banca Finat Euramerica, a family-run private Italian bank. That should reassure you enough right there. You know, that you can take to that bank. Vatican investigators suspect Natino used the accounts at APSA, for personal trades on the Italian stock market. The balance of more than 2 million euros, that's more than more than more than $2 million, was moved to Switzerland when the accounts were closed days before the Vatican introduced stricter new laws against money laundering. Like he was tipped off or something. Like he knew it was... You know, he listen, you got a family-run private Italian bank. You weren't born yesterday. Uh, from... 2000 to 2011, Natino, who served on the board of many Italian firms and volunteered as an usher in the Papal Palace. Well, there you go, right there. You volunteer as an usher. You, get the, you hear things. Things are in the air. He was the owner of a portfolio which consisted of four separate accounts, which did the trading possibly in Italy and Switzerland. Switzerland, where they have banking secrecy still a little bit, not not like they used to, but, you know, still, still just a smidge. New, and yes, this was News of the Godly, strangely enough, copyrighted feature of this broadcast. And now it's time for me to read the trades for you. Not, not enough record scratch on previous broadcasts, so we're heavying up this week. Advertisers may suffer political crowd out as the 2016 elections near. That's what Advertising Age says. We'll read it for you. May share a couple more uh, trade type items too. It's it's worth sticking around just for this. But wait, there's more. But wait, there's this first. 
unprecedented ad spending by a record number of White House hopefuls and other hot races as advertisers worried about political crowd out or a dearth of attractive TV time slots for other advertisers and a spike in rates. Big money will be spent on political ads in the coming election cycle. Boral Associates estimates $8.5 billion will be spent on broadcast TV. Five and a half coming from national races, 3.1 spent on state and local contests. It's almost as if the television business has a vested interest in the... Yes, it almost seems that way. There's an agreement more money will be spent on political ads in this cycle than ever before. These ads are also likely to be running for longer periods of time and in more cities, in part because there are more than 20 presidential candidates from both parties. If you're an advertiser in any of the key primary states, you can have a real crunch. Says Don Jaffe, the top lobbyist for the Association of National Advertisers. The phenomenal growth and popularity of super PACs that often outspend candidates and are expected to be more active than ever this year will also add to the competition for advertising time. There's just more money sloshing around, said Mr. Jaffe. That's what it's doing. It's just slashing. Local advertisers may be most affected, but some national advertisers, especially those that run ads in regional markets, could have trouble getting the word out, too. The Television Bureau of Advertising is counseling advertisers how to best navigate those months, especially September and October of next year, when political ads will reach a crescendo. That's a nice way of putting it. He urges, says uh, he, who he? Brad Sider, the organization's executive VP for business development, urges those in political hot zones to purchase spots scheduled for September, October, way ahead of time. He also said advertisers should have a historical view of cost, meaning they should pay what broadcasters charge for those slots in previous elections, even if it's more than three times the current rate. That's so they don't get knocked out of rotation by political ads. He also advises advertisers to book and buy ads in different times of the day, avoiding the news shows favored by politicians. Others encourage advertisers to wait to roll out a new product or new campaign until after the elections. This isn't the case of the sky is falling, Jaffe said. People are going to get their message out, but people have to be aware there is more money being spent in a different climate this year, unquote. Another problem for advertisers, many are squeamish about the prospect of their ads running after a political attack ad. This according to Shanto Iyengar, professor of political science at Stanford. Political advertising is extremely negative and people despise it, he said. Advertisers feel they may be kind of a spillover effect. They want to come they don't want to come right after that political ad, unquote. Don't worry about it, it's just sloshing. This from Pointer.org, in a website that follows news organizations. For years, journalists have railed against page views and uniques, twin metrics that have established supremacy over much of the Internet. Their argument uh, goes like this. Page views and unique, uniques or unique visitors tend to emphasize frivolous content, like cat videos, at the expense of serious journalism. The metrics can be gamed by publishers with the money and inclination to buy traffic. And there's confusion among advertisers about the value of a click. In lieu of those metrics, several organizations have called for a better standard for measuring audience attention. 
the Knight Foundation has given NPR $35,000 to build CareBot, a tool that aims to go beyond page views and uniques to determine how valuable stories are to readers or listeners. The stated mission of the project, spearheaded by NPR's Brian Boyer, is to devise metrics that change how newsrooms measure and celebrate successful stories. Our official team motto these days is, we make people care, said Boyer. If that's our motto, if that's what we tell ourselves, if that's what we're trying to do every day, then how do we know if we're doing our jobs? How do we measure that success? The answer, according to Boyer's team, lies with the kinds of numbers that news organizations choose to count and how they choose to calculate them. Rather than adding up the number of page views and uniques, Boyer's team is building a tool that will aggregate data from a variety of sources, including Chartbeat, Google Analytics, and social networks. It will crunch those numbers following a formula devised by Boyer's team to evaluate how much readers cared about any given story. CareBot hasn't been built yet, but Boyer's says a tool will emphasize a series of metrics include social engagement, likes and shares, time spent on site, and completion rate. They know whether you finish reading a story or hearing it, I guess. CareBot will base its scores on the number of engagements per page view. The goal is to come up with numbers that reflect how much readers love various stories produced by NPR. Since we can't put our readers on an MRI machine and actually watch the happy parts of their brain tick off when they're reading a piece, we have to approximate, he says. NPR will likely build CareBot into a website. It plans to open source the program for use by other news organizations. Boyer thinks metrics that focus on quality user experience will de-emphasize clutter and help decrease the number of websites filled with ugly ads. We're trying to come up, says Boyer, with the metrics we need, unquote. Coming your way soon. CareBot. Please give. Who would have known? Who would have known? Who would have thunk? Had I not read the trades for you. Copyrighted feature of this broadcast. And now, ladies and gentlemen, news of the warm, won't you? In the words of Rob Lowe, is it hot in here or is it just me? Ladies and gentlemen, Hawaii's unique native forest birds will need a substantial helping hand if they're to survive the growing impacts of climate change, according to a new study. Published last week in the journal PLOS One, it found that birds living in the higher elevation forests could lose a majority of their habitat due to the global warming projected by the end of the century. The study examined 20 native forest buried species and concluded that all of them will lose more than 50% of their habitat in the coming decades. Nine of the species could lose 75% or more of their range by 2100, including three that could lose more than 90%, the Hawaii Akipa, Akohekohe, and Kiwikiu, or the Maui Parrot Bill. Please pay your Maui Parrot Bill. 
You don't want those parrots to go unfed. Three others from Kauai will suffer a complete loss of range. Again, due to climate change, according to uh, the authors of this particular study. The study was led by the Pacific Islands Climate Range uh, Climate Change Cooperative and included researchers from the Geological Survey and the Fish and Wildlife Service. This group of species has a high level of vulnerability to climate change, says the lead author. What we show is what will happen if we continue with business as usual. The impacts of avian disease and forest birds have been widely studied. This study offers a more comprehensive look at the problem by examining the dynamics of a range of species, including multiple highly endangered native forest breeds, previously excluded from other uh, other analyses. The uh, colorful forest birds of Hawaii have always played a significant role in native Hawaiian culture. More than half of the unique bird species went extinct before European contact. Since humans arrived, 71 of 113 bird species found nowhere else have become extinct in Hawaii. But the birds love us. Dayland, Washington, D.C., some substitutes for ozone-damaging chemicals being phased out worldwide under international agreements. That was a good thing, right? The substitutes are themselves potent greenhouse gases and contribute to warming. You know, it's the yin, it's the yin, it's the yang. Now, a new study published in Geophysical Research Letters. I put extra stamps on mine. Uh, it's a publication of the American Geophysical Union. shows for the first time how some of these replacement chemicals can break down in the atmosphere to form a greenhouse gas that can persist for millennia, that's all, much longer than the chemicals themselves. When some chemicals widely used as refrigerants break down in the stratosphere, under some conditions they can form a potent greenhouse gas that lasts for up to 50,000 years, according to scientists at the University of Colorado Boulder and NOAA. The compound carbon tetrafluoride, CF4, essentially lasts forever because there aren't any known removal mechanisms in the atmosphere, says a lead author of the study. They uh, did laboratory work showing how CF4 can be made from some halocarbons. Those are chemicals that include hydrofluorocarbons and hydrochlorofluorocarbons. Those are substitutes for the more damaging, ozone-damaging chemicals that have been largely phased out. CF4 is one of the breakdown products of those chemicals. The amount of CF4 produced by the photochemical process is a small fraction of atmospheric CF4. Industrial sources are much larger emitters of it. Still, identifying this particular source of such a potent and lasting greenhouse gas is important, particularly since its production could continue to grow depending on which parent products are used by industry, says the lead author of the study. We really need to understand the chemistry of the, pro- of the compounds we use, unquote. A little late, bud. Where were you during the war? Scientists for the first time determined the ratio of males to females in a wild foraging group of green turtles in the eastern Pacific. The study suggests sea turtles may be vulnerable to feminization from the temperature rises expected with climate change. Turtles going girly! The the sex of sea turtles is determined by incubation temperatures on the beaches where they nest, with warmer sand temperatures producing more females. That's all i got to do is warm up the sand and I get more females? Research published recently in the journal PLOS-1 focused on the San Diego Bay aggregation of green turtles. They're a threatened species that's been studied for more than 25 years. Scientists found the sex ratio leans heavily toward females. Oh, to be a guy green turtle, huh? Yeah. Six species of sea turtles that inhabit U.S. waters are listed as threatened or endangered. They're thus the focus of extensive protection 
by NOAA and the Fish and Wildlife Service. Data on sex ratios and survival rates of both males and females at foraging sites are important keys to conserving sea turtles. They can help explain trends seen on the nesting beaches. Because the turtles are wide-ranging with a relatively long maturation period, tell me about it, most sea turtle population assessments rely only on data from the nesting beaches. This study studied the foraging populations, a cross-section of life stages offering greater insight into overall population sex ratios. The southern ocean is acidifying at such a rate because of rising carbon dioxide emissions that large regions may be inhospitable for key organisms in the food chain. Who needs the food chain? Throw off your food chains. Uh, As soon as 2030, according to new U.S. research, tiny pteropods, snail-like creatures that play an important role in the food web, will lose their ability to form shells as oceans absorb more of the carbon dioxide from the atmosphere process already observed over short periods in areas close to the Antarctic coast. As CO2 levels rise, morbid is absorbed by seawater, resulting in a lower pH level and reduced carbonate ion concentration. Marine organisms with skeletons and shells therefore struggle to develop and maintain their structures. Throw off your shells, sea creatures, and enjoy a new... Using 10 Earth system models and applying a high emissions scenario, the researchers found the relatively acidic southern ocean quickly becomes unsuited for shell-forming creatures such as pteropods, according to a paper in Nature Climate Change. What surprised us was really the abruptness at which this undersaturation of calcium carbonate-based aragonite occurs in large areas of the southern ocean, said a co-author. It's actually quite scary. The background state is already very close to corrosiveness, unquote. Uh, another quote from the, one of the authors of the study, take away this biomass, referring to these creatures, which will no longer be able to build their shells, and you have avalanche effects for the rest of the food web, unquote. Within this century, parts of the Persian Gulf region could be hit with unprecedented events of deadly heat as a result of climate change, according to a study of high-resolution climate models. Well, this could this could solve the whole Middle East problem if it's too hot for them. The research reveals details of a business-as-usual scenario for greenhouse gas emissions, also shows that curbing emissions could forestall these deadly temperature extremes. The study published in the Nature Climate Change was carried out by a professor at uh, MIT, and, uh, and another one at Mary, uh, Loyola Marymount. They conclude the conditions in the Persian Gulf, including its shallow water in intense sun, make it a specific regional hotspot where climate change and absence of significant mitigation is likely to severely impact human habitability in the future. Running high-resolution high versions of standard climate models, the authors found many major cities in the Persian Gulf region could exceed a tipping point for human survival even in shaded and well-ventilated spaces. One author says the threshold, as, is, as far as we know, has never been reported for any location on Earth, unquote. The um, measurement is a, the wet bulb temperature that combines temperature and humidity, reflecting conditions the human body could maintain without artificial cooling. A threshold for survival for more than six unprotected hours is about 95 degrees Fahrenheit, 
according to recently published research. This limit was almost reached this summer at the end of an extreme week-long heat wave in the region, in Iran, among other places. But the severe danger to human health and life occurs when such temperatures are sustained for several hours, say the authors, which the models show would occur several times in a 30-year period toward the end of the century under the business-as-usual scenario used as a benchmark by the International Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change. The Persian Gulf region is especially vulnerable, the researchers say, because a combination of low elevations, clear sky, water body that increases heat absorption, and the shallowness of the Persian Gulf itself, which produces high water temperatures that lead to strong evaporation and very high humidity. Cities such as Doha, Abu Dhabi, and Dubai, and Bandar Abbas in Iran could exceed the threshold over several times over a 30-year period. Hot summer conditions that now occur once every 20 days will characterize the usual summer day in the future, according to the authors. Many in the Persian Gulf's wealthier states might be able to adapt to new climate extremes. Poorer areas such as Yemen might be less able to quote to cope with such extremes. They're already having a war in Yemen. This will make things better. Is it hot in here or is it just me? Yeah. News of the Warm, ladies and gentlemen, a copyrighted feature of this broadcast.
From New Orleans, this is Le Show. Ladies and gentlemen, the, uh, the blimps that were going to save us are not going to save us. The Pentagon has suspended indefinitely a trial run of the troubled missile defense system called J-Lens, whose giant radar-carrying blimps were intended to help safeguard the skies over Washington. Washington, you're on your own. Blimps are blimp down. Blimp down. The three-year operational exercise has been a financial lifeline for J-Lens, arranged by supporters of the program, like the Friends of Raytheon. They're good peop- the good people at Raytheon. After Army leaders tried to kill it. You can't kill a blimp. It's not alive. Any decision whether to resume the exercise will wait until after the Army has completed an investigation of how one of the pilotless blimps broke away from its mooring station in Maryland. Well, who wants to be moored in Maryland? Really, you know? <clears throat> no knock on Maryland. It's just not good mooring. Good morning, everybody. And flew uncontrolled over parts of two mid-Atlantic states last week, week before last. It's going to be a complete and thorough investigation, and it takes time, says an Army spokesman. The mishap provoked fresh questions about the worth of J-Lens, which has cost us, you and me, more than $2.7 billion so far. But we had a good time with the blimp running away. The runaway blimp. <laughs> it's sort of where Maryland and Pennsylvania. You folks must have enjoyed it. Dragging the its 6,700-foot-long mooring cable behind it. The cable clipped power lines. Well, okay, that wasn't much fun. Future actions regarding the J-Lens exercise says an Army spokesman, will be made following the conclusion of the investigation. I'm, I'm getting the feeling we may have seen the last of the blimp. Blimpy, we hardly knew ye. Um, following up on the BP oil from five years ago along the Gulf Coast, dolphins living in a Louisiana bay polluted by it have had a very difficult time giving birth long after their bay was covered in slicks, according to a new study. This is the latest by a team of scientists that's tracked the health of the population of bottlenose dolphins in Barataria Bay, an estuary south of here, that was covered in heavy slicks, thanks to the good people at BP, which is not a British company. No matter, The researchers tracked 10 pregnant dolphins for nearly four years and found that only two of them were able to give birth. The study was produ- uh, published in the Proceedings of the Royal Academy of Sciences in Britain. In Britain? It's not a Brit- After the spill, researchers found dolphins in Barataria suffering from lung diseases and abnormalities they associated with exposure to oil contamination. Since then, they've been focusing on the dolphins. The new study found they've suffered from a high mortality rate and chronic diseases that have hurt the animal's ability to reproduce. The study said the effects of the spill, quote, have been long-lasting. This dolphin population, as well as other dolphin and whale populations that were exposed to the Deepwater Horizon oil, will take a long time to recover, says the lead researcher. The data from 2013 and 2014 reproduction rates show continuing problems, and those were not included in the new paper. Dolphins are slow to reach reproductive maturity. Hey, tell me about it. And once they do, it takes about a year for them to give birth. They only give birth to a single calf every three to five years, Government scientists say it could take decades for mam- mammal populations in the Gulf to recover from the spill. But, you know, the tourism is back and the shrimp. And now, ladies and gentlemen, it's, um, it's a week in which Ahmed Chalabi passed away. If, um, if the name rings a distant bell, 
Ahmed Chalabi formed an uh, organization called the Iraqi National Congress in the mid-1990s. He was an Iraqi uh, exile who had, um, I think he had a doctorate. He was living comfortably in London, but um, he wanted Saddam Hussein out, and he wanted the United States to help. And the United States wanted to help. Um, we gave him, his, his uh, organization, millions of dollars over the years before the... Uh, invasion. And um, Chalabi was uh, avid and eager in supplying defectors who were able to tell parts of the United States government, especially uh, when the Bush administration took office, uh, eager to tell stories about stuff that Saddam had or stuff that Saddam was doing that turned out not to be true. The CIA said uh, these defectors were of questionable credibility but other parts of the government persisted and uh, continued to support Ahmed Chalabi. He uh, ran for office, I think, in uh, 2010 and got three-tenths of one percent of the vote. And this week he died of a heart attack. Um, in other news, former President George H.W. Bush has a book. It's actually a book of... of um, it's not his book. It's a book based on his diaries by John Meacham, who formerly edited Newsweek. Um, he, Meacham quotes Bush as saying that both Don Rumsfeld and Dick Cheney were too hawkish, and their harsh stance damaged the reputation of the United States. I don't know, he says of Cheney. He just became very hardline and different from the Dick Cheney I knew and worked with. His seeming knuckling under the real hard-charging guys who want to fight about everything Use force to get our way in the Middle East. Just iron ass. Yes, this is the George H.W. Bush that doesn't speak in complete sentences. Bush believes Cheney acted too independently of his son by creating a national security team in his own office. Those would be the people who welcomed the defectors supplied by Ahmed Chalabi. On Rumsfeld, Bush was even more critical. I don't like what he did, and I think it hurt the president. I've never been that close to him anyway. He's more kick-ass and take names, take numbers. I think he paid a price for that. Rumsfeld was an arrogant fellow. Bush also suggested that uh, Cheney's wife, Lynn, and his daughter, Liz, may have been instrumental in persuading him to adopt a harder-line view. Cheney's reply this week, I got there all by myself. In other words, next, intimate tales of America's former underground vice president, the action-packed diary of the man who was just an enhanced heartbeat away from history, Dick Cheney, confidential, 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 confidential. There's no meaner mistress than time. And this week it became evident that she had stripped a certain heroic Iraqi exile of his existence and a certain president I call 41 of some of his more acute mental faculties. Lynn and I had been in our undisclosed Wyoming hideaway, recovering from the news of Ahmed Chalabi's untimely passing. It was a difficult blow, first because he died of a heart attack, and I felt a slight pang of guilt. 
If only my dear friend Ahmed had had access to the high-quality medical care provided to American vice presidents, he might have, as I have, had the advantage of relaying in his twilight years on a heart that was not his own. But of course, although Congress had allowed us to subsidize his Iraqi National Congress to the tune of a few million dollars a year, it never saw fit to make him eligible for the health insurance coverage allocated to high-ranking executive branch officials. His cholesterol is on Congress's hands. Also, the news of Chalabi's demise meant that once again it was open season in the liberal media against those of us who saw the necessity in the post-9-11 world of overthrowing anybody who looked at us funny. And while Lynn was wrestling with the age-old problem of how to cook caribou and not have it turn out tougher than a hooker's smile, I was being treated to the spectacle of old 41 unloading on Don Rumsfeld and me. And his own son. Obviously, the old man had missed the proper moment for noticing that his son was in dire need of adult guidance by about two and a half decades. Now he seemed to be blaming everything Junior did on me, accusing me of being an iron ass, and even on Lynn, who he neglected to mention had an iron part of her own body located elsewhere. Neither 43 nor I were legally capable of paying our respects at Mr. Chalabi's funeral in person. But we did have the Iraqi government pay to set up a secure video link for us to their service. The way we looked at it, since we didn't get the Iraqi oil deal wrapped up, the video link was the least they could do. Thursday, 4.15 p.m. Tell you one thing I never understood, Chain Man. Yes, sir. Well, your Arab came up in a in a desert environment, mm. and yet he talks like he's got one heck of a cold. It's a puzzler to me, too, sir. Hmm. But a loss to lose this man at this time. How much he had yet to contribute to a new Middle East. Yeah, I suppose. I thought he kind of shot his wad when he introduced us to that curveball fella. Oh, sir, he had plenty more people prepared to risk their lives to feed us crucial information that might motivate us to a more robust power projection. I guess he did. Man, he always seemed more wired in Iraq than a meth head in Fallujah. <laughs> Have you talked to your dad lately? Oh, hey, listen, Chainster, I read the news aggregators. I know 41 just slammed you in his new bib biography. Well, he engaged in what I like to call enhanced criticism of me and of poor old Don Rumsfeld. Yeah, Dad was never that keen on Don. He didn't like hard chargers. <laughs> Heck, that's why he preferred Jeb to me. Yeah. Hmm. You know, when we asked for this secure video feed of the funeral, mm -hmm. probably should have remembered to ask for a translator. Well... See, that's how they try to get us. We couldn't fly over there because of the, uh... Possible enhanced danger. Yeah, but we can sit here, but not understand the word they're saying. Mm -hmm. wouldn't have let this happen if he were alive. If he were alive, we wouldn't be here. So look, have you... Have you talked to 41 about the book? Oh, sure. He called me up to tell me it was coming out, yeah. Offered me some signed copies. Mm -hmm. Told me it might, quote, feather a few ruffles. You mean ruffle a few feathers. Look, all I know is you lose me when you start talking about ruffles. That's Laura's department. Because Lynn's not happy. Really? Oh, you two always seemed like the perfect couple, all 
gruff and grim together? I don't mean that. She's not happy with the book. She's plenty happy with me, especially since the new heart. It's giving me back my old snarl. Yeah, well, I know Poppy did kind of blame her for your turn to, uh... Enhanced conservatism. Right, right. I think he was kind of searching for explanations. Mm -hmm. Because he never quite grasped that 9-11 launched a generational struggle that necessitated war without end. Something like that. Anyway, look, if it's any kind of a comfort station for you, I never thought you were the kind of person who could get pushed around politically by his or, or her wife. I mean, this is still the eulogy, right? You got me. Well, look, we both know your dad's kind of frail at this point in time. Well, he's not jumping out of any airplanes anymore. He just might. Oh, I kind of doubt it. It might not be his choice. Of course, none of that would have to happen if some late changes were made to a particular book before it went on actual sale. I think he said the first million copies already shipped. Hey, good news for FedEx. They get to be shipped back. <laughs> you know, Chainster, it, it almost feels as like it, it's it, you're making fun of the caricaturistic image of yourself. I, I mean... Mr. President, one thing I don't make is fun. Wow. That's going to get the ceremonial grape juice all over the rug. You going to call the old man? <laughs> sure, what the heck. All he can say is no, which is what he said to me my whole life. Okay. Maybe they'll start singing soon. <laughs> Trust me, you don't want that. <laughs> Listen, pal, mm. this is all history now, you know? Toast. You gotta let it go a little. I would, Mr. President. Except for one thing. Yeah? Lynn won't let me. I'm a realist. Maybe those copies of the book won't be recalled and pulped. But I know one thing, George Herbert Walker Bush will be in no doubt about my enhanced irritation. End a partial diary for the start of November 2015. Sincerely yours, Dick Cheney. Confidential, 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 confidential. I watch your fragile features grow I know all the pain that you retain inside I'd do anything to make it go I can be wearing, I can be tearing at times there's just one thing I want you to know What it feels like Life has laid you low And there's no one else hanging round 
it feels like you're just a rolling stone. I'll keep your sweet feet firmly on the ground. Cause you and I have grown up. You and I have sold out. You and I have laughed and we're here. Keep, keep rolling on. Keep your sweet feet firmly on the ground. And now, ladies and gentlemen, the apologies of the week. The man Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu picked it as, as his new chief of public diplomacy. You know, that's like making nice with everybody. He's apologized for comparing Secretary of State John Kerry's mental age to that of a 12-year-old and suggesting that President Obama is anti-Semitic. Netanyahu also distanced himself from the remarks of Ron Baratz, some of them posted on his Facebook page saying he hadn't been aware of them before the nomination. Baratz is a conservative academic. The flap comes days before Netanyahu's visit to Washington to visit President Obama this time, not, not slide by him. On Thursday, White House Press Secretary Josh Ernest, joshing in earnest, said it's readily apparent that that apology was warranted. Baratz has a Ph.D. in philosophy. Ozzy Osbourne, on the other hand, visited in San Antonio for a television show taping this week. While there, he took time to apologize for his visit to the city in 1982 when he peed near the Alamo. Back in the 1980s, Osbourne was on tour with Black Sabbath in February 1982, the night before the show at the Hemisphere Arena. He was arrested after befouling a statue across the street from the fort-turned-museum. He was subsequently banned from San Antonio for 10 years. Colombia's president has apologized for the military's 1985 assault on the Supreme Court after it was taken over by leftist rebels. More than 100 people, including half the country's Supreme Court judges, 
were killed. Colombian President Juan Manuel Santos apologized for the military's 1985 assault on the Supreme Court after rebels overran the building and took hundreds of people hostage. I ask forgiveness, said the president. Lisa Rina and Harry Hamlin are backpedaling. This is a, a, a whole new section of apologies this week, ladies and gentlemen. People apologizing for their Halloween costumes. So stand by for that coming up. And here they are, Lisa Rinna and Harry Hamlin, backpedaling from a Halloween costume that took authenticity a little too far, according to USA Today. The married actors were photographed dressed up as Sex Pistols bassist Sid Vicious and his girlfriend Nancy Spungen, Spungen for Halloween. Hamlin was sporting a red T-shirt with a swastika printed on it. Outfits were inspired by a real photo of Sid and Nancy, where Sid wears a similar T-shirt. After the costume generated outcry for the use of the symbol, Rinna took to her Instagram to apologize for the both of them. If I hurt you, we were being authentic to the characters of Sid and Nancy for our Halloween costumes. It hurt and angered many of you, and we are deeply sorry for that. That was never our intention. We did not mean to offend with love, Lisa and Harry. That's an if-pology. Olympic free skier Gus Kenworthy, who came out just last month, has apologized for a photograph he posted on Instagram featuring him dressed as a Native American chief for Halloween. Initially, he wrote, For everyone giving me grief, I don't really understand why this is racist or cultural appropriation. It's Halloween just having fun. However, the Instagram hordes weren't satisfied with the statement. Didn't realize I was being offensive. Didn't mean to marginalize or appropriate Native American culture. Sorry. Pick deleted, he said. I think there's one more. Yes. Dateline Sacramento, the Sacramento LGBT Community Center issued an apology this week for a fundraising event that appropriated East Asian culture. There were Japanese fans, there were Japanese umbrellas, Japanese cranes mixed in with Chinese dragon-themed Chinese lanterns, and it kind of made it unclear which culture they were referring to, said Richard Cariolo with the Asian Pacific Islander Queer Sacramento Coalition. Indeed, it's a party where a red dress was required, but some say it went too far. This was the red dragon theme for the event. We apologize for the insensitivity felt toward Asian Pacific Islander community members and using Asian themes and symbols for the event, and we take full responsibility for the unintended offensive message it conveyed, said a post on the Sacramento Red Dress Party Facebook page. Uh, APIQSC said the party caused, quote, deep pain and alienation. Red Dragon Deep Pain. Michigan police are apologizing for handcuffing a seven-year-old boy at his elementary school last month. In Flint, student appeared in, intent on injuring himself. He was handcuffed to prevent injury to himself and others. But uh, it's just another instance of police, cops on campus. And uh, the leader of an Apache tribe, Apache tribe in Arizona, going back to our theme, has uh, apologized for dressing up as Bob Marley for Halloween and painting his face dark, calling the costume a poor choice. I will continue to ask my creator for forgiveness as I'm not perfect, but I realize asking for forgiveness means not repeating the action, he said. A civil rights activist said the uh, Apache chairman, Terry Rambler, made a mockery of black people with the costume. Jeb Bush has apologized for insulting France. The Senate, what is it, like a French work week? You get three days where you have to show up, he asked. 
French newspapers described the comment as not exactly well received in France. Bush said, my God, I totally insulted an entire country. I apologize. That did a huge disservice to France. The apologies of the week, ladies and gentlemen, a copyrighted feature of this broadcast. There should be more shortly, but here we go. Ladies and gentlemen, that's going to conclude this week's edition of the show. The program returns next week at the same time over these same stations, over NPR worldwide throughout Europe, the U.S. and 440 cable system in Japan, around the world through the facilities of the American Forces Network, up and down the east coast of North America by the shortwave giant WBCQ, the planet 7.490 megahertz shortwave around the world via the Internet at two different locations, live and archive whenever you want it, harryshare.com and kcsn.org. Available for your smartphone through Stitcher.com and available as a free podcast from iTunes, Sideshow Network, SoundCloud, WWNO.org. And tune in. And it'd be just like cueing the record up to the right spot if you'd agree to join with me then. Would you? Alrighty. Thank you very much. Uh huh. Show chapeau to the San Diego, Pittsburgh, Chicago, and exile in Hawaii desks. Thanks, as always, to Pam Halstead and to Jenny Lawson here at WWNO New Orleans for help with today's broadcast. The email address for this program, yes, we still get email. We still read it. Uh, and the playlist, where you can find out what the music is, whether it's been queued up correctly or not, that's all available on harryshare.com along with your opportunity to get... Oh, Christmas is coming. Cars I Talk t-shirts. And uh, whatever's coming, I'm on Twitter at the Harry Shearer. The show comes to you from Century of Progress Productions and originates through the facilities of WWNO New Orleans flagship station of the Changes Easy Radio Network. So long from New Orleans.